I hope you brought your copy of God's Word with you today. I would invite you to open it again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Mark is the second of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospels are just biographies of the life of Jesus written by eyewitnesses and those who had close interaction with eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Mark chapter 3. Our text today is going to be a little bit funky. We're going to be in verses 13 through 21 and then verses 31 through 35 of Mark 3, and I'll explain that in just a moment. A sermon I've titled Family Ties. Mark 3, uh, beginning in verse 13. If you're using one of the Bibles that's under a seat in front of you, you'll find Mark chapter 3 on page 787. Uh, the large chapters on the pages are, the, or the large numbers on the pages of the chapters. The small superscripted numbers are the verses. So starting in Mark 3, verse 13. Uh, many of you know that uh, about 13 years or so, uh, years ago or so, in 2010 and 2011, my wife and I and our oldest daughter Abigail at the time, who doesn't remember any of it because she was too small, spent about a year living in and ministering in Hawaii. Uh, our ministry assignment was to college students there on the big island of Hawaii in a little town called Hilo. If you've ever been on a Hawaiian cruise, you've probably stopped in Hilo. You probably had cookies at the Big Island Candy Factory, uh, uh, which are delicious, and uh, you need to go have them. At any rate, one of the things that was maybe most surprising, kind of caught us off guard a little bit, was just different for us culturally being in Hawaii, was the way that everybody refers to everyone else. Whenever you're around older women, it's not you know, Miss Jeannie. And when you're around older men, it's not Mr. Frank, it's Uncle Jeannie. Oh, sorry, Auntie, Auntie Jeannie, Uncle Frank. <laughs> older women are always aunties. Older men are always uncles. And everybody is everybody's cousin. And, and, and so it's not uncommon to walk into a church. And so like here, we might use uh, those, those more uh, uh, less familial, uh, uh, what is the word? Pleasantries, right? People might call me Mr. Stephen, my wife, Miss Nikki. But if we were in Hawaii, it would be Uncle Stephen, Auntie Nikki. In fact, uh, some of our very best friends in the world, uh, Shane and Mela. Shane is from Hawaii. He married Nikki and I. Um, they have two sons, Preston and Justice. And uh, it is a, a, one of the singular greatest joys in our life when we get to spend time with the Tanigawas. But Shane grew up in Hawaii. Mela grew up in northern Louisiana. So she's got this whole southern hospitality thing going as well, too. But they're two boys, Preston and Justice. When we're around them. Preston, who is, is just one of my favorite people in the world, he'll always just call me Stephen. Hey, Stephen, he's just so excited to see me. He can't remember to call me uncle. And Shane always says, Uncle Stephen, like that familial bond uh, among those that have grown up and lived in Hawaii is just is so, uh, it's just intrinsic to their culture. And here's the crazy thing that they don't just say it as a formality, like they really mean it. We were struck by our time living in Hawaii by the, the, the not just hospitality, but real family reception that we received as Howley mainlanders uh, by the locals there uh, on the big island, particularly in churches. Like they received us like family. They cared for us like family. They'd bring food and stuff to our house and, and, and almost force themselves to babysit our daughter so we could go out and have a date night. They were th- this family idea that, that supersedes and pervades all of their culture is just so real and tangible. And it goes even further than just out in society. It, it goes even deeper in the context of the local church. The Hawaiian word for family is ohana. You've probably heard it before, especially if your kids like the Disney movie Lilo and Stitch. Ohana means family, and family means no one gets left behind. Some of you know it, right? 
Uh, or forgotten. Yeah, okay, thank you for correcting me, dear. Uh, obviously, I don't watch the movie enough. But ohana as, as a concept, as a cultural construct in Hawaii is real, and people really treat each other like it. To have this idea of family that goes beyond just blood bonds, but to, uh, but to those that are just near you, in your sphere of influence, in your, in your circle of life, to include them in your family, is something that is kind of strange to our culture, but yet as Christians it ought not to be. We'll see in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father results in his own family relationships with his mother and his brothers being strained. But we also find that Jesus declares that there is a new family of faith that is formed in him with bonds that are deeper than even blood among all who obey the will of God, that there is an ohana that is not connected by blood but by allegiance to Jesus. The main idea of Mark 3 in our passage today is this, that being part of the family of God through allegiance to Christ, it creates new spiritual family bonds and can strain natural family bonds. Allegiance to Jesus creates new family bonds that can strain old family bonds. I hope this morning as we see this on display in the text that we would gladly receive membership in Christ's family through our allegiance and our faith to Him. We need to also be, as we think on this this morning and see it in God's Word, we need to be prepared to follow Christ, even when natural family members reject us because of it. And as a church, we must be ready to receive in Christ those who have been cast away because of Christ. Now, our passage this morning fits in the first of a few significant, what I and other scholars, I shouldn't say other scholars like I am one, what I and scholars call sandwiches in Mark's gospel. In fact, there is this term, the Markan sandwich, uh, that, that appears regularly in biblical scholarship. This happens when Mark and his gospel takes one event in Jesus's life and then brackets it with the beginning and the concluding parts of another event in Jesus' life. The, the bread or the top and bottom of a Markan sandwich is our passage today, Mark 3, 13 to 21 and 31 to 35. The meat or the peanut butter and jelly or whatever you like to put in the middle of your sandwich, depending on your preference for analogies, is another confrontation with the Pharisees. So we have this interaction with Jesus and his family, uh, spiritual family and biological family, all sitting around what's in the middle, uh, another confrontation with the religious elite. Now, as we'll see today, Jesus' natural family oppose him, thinking that he's out of his mind. And the Pharisees, as we'll see next week, oppose him, accusing him of being demonically possessed. Now, the interplay of, uh, of, uh, of these two scenes ultimately serves to teach that opposition to Jesus is ultimately opposition to God's own will, which is fulfilled in Christ and for the world. The whole sandwich together, Jesus' interaction with his family and his interaction with the Pharisees, helps us to understand that allegiance to Jesus is costly and, friends, that it is frequently unpopular even with our own blood kinship. So let's read, first of all, the bread of the, uh, of the sandwich, Mark 3, 13 to 21, and then verses 31 to 35. We'll look at the meat of it next week, his interaction with the Pharisees. But I invite you, as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading his word. Mark 3, beginning in verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Look down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. You may be seated. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3 so that you might follow along there as we refer to different parts of the text, or you can make notes, uh, underline, circle important things that catch your mind as we work through this text today. We find that allegiance to Christ creates a new family of faith in Him that can sometimes strain the familial bonds that we have by family kinship. In this text today, we find, first of all, I want to deal with a couple of things sort of thematically in the text. We won't be going verse by verse uh, because there's really more themes that are being expounded here, more than uh, an argument that's being put forward in, in systematic form. But the first theme that we see in these verses is this, new family ties are formed in Christ. New family ties are formed by Christ. This family, uh, this passage, excuse me, is going to launch us into one of the more focused ministry seasons of Jesus' life. Now, up to this point, he spent time in and around Galilee, that, that region around the Sea of Galilee, preaching in synagogues and healing people and casting out demons. And what comes soon after this passage in Mark's gospel and in Jesus' life is a more broad public ministry throughout Galilee, but also in Judea and Jerusalem. We're going to move away from a lot of the wonder working, the miracles, the healings, and into a lot more uh, didactic teaching by Jesus. We see in this scene, these new family ties that are formed by Christ, we see that this is a family that, first of all, originates in Christ. It starts in Jesus. So here in Mark 3, on the, on the eve of Jesus' broader ministry, he calls his, we see him calling his ministry team together, the 12. And in so doing, he's creating a new family of sorts. Now, it's interesting that Jesus calls 12 men. We, we should perk up at that if we have an understanding of the rest of the Bible. It's also intentional by Jesus. It's not accidental. When God expanded his covenant people through the line of Abraham in the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis, he did so through Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his 12 sons. Jacob had his name changed by God to Israel, and his 12 sons become the 12 figureheads, the namesakes of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. Now, Jesus, being himself not only the second Adam from whom a new people are born again through God's Spirit, he is also the true Israel. He's the true head of God's covenant people, whom he purchases for himself by the blood of Christ. Jesus is doing more than just forming a team. He's growing what Paul will call in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. He is bringing together the members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles 
and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. These 12 men are the representative foundation of the new covenant people of God in Christ. They aren't to be revered or worshipped like Christ, but to be sure, our understanding of who Jesus is comes from their witness of His life, death, and resurrection. Our faith is built on their witness. We are family. We are part of the family of God in Christ So much so because they were faithful to proclaim what they had seen and heard and done alongside Christ. And Paul notes there in Ephesians 2.20 when he calls, when he says that we are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He says what Jesus, uh, uh, he also affirms what Jesus titles these 12 guys. He calls them apostles. The word literally means something like the sent out ones. The ones that are sent out by Jesus. And we'll see later on in Mark's gospel, as we see also in in, uh, Matthew and in Luke, that Jesus will send them out in teams of two to preach the gospel in various towns and then to return to him to give a report of the ministry. And this is what Jesus does. He sends them out with delegated authority from his own hand to do what he has been doing. He gives them authority to preach and to cast out demons, Mark tells us. They are namely preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand in the presence of his Christ. Just as Jesus, in the, in the summary of his preaching early in Mark's gospel, Jesus went out preaching the good news of the kingdom. The, gospel, uh, the, the, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says. So his disciples are proclaiming the same message. And they also have delegated authority from Jesus to cast out demons from those who have been afflicted by evil spirits. The same thing we see Jesus doing regularly throughout the first couple of chapters in Mark's gospel. These 12 apostles are selected by Jesus to continue his ministry, to expand his ministry, and to carry it on after he is gone. It is the apostles who will preach the gospel after Christ is raised again from the dead and ascends to the Father. In commissioning commissioning them to go and do what he does, he is calling them to represent him in the world and to do so faithfully and consistently and appropriately in a godly way. In fact, it is finding yourself pursuing the will of God that makes you a part of Christ's family. When a commotion breaks out among Jesus' own family later on in this passage, his mother and his brothers are, trying to, are coming to Jesus in Capernaum, leaving their home in Nazareth, coming to Capernaum, trying to call him back home, trying to drag him back home. Jesus says that his family are not those who are necessarily related to him by blood, but those who are doing God's will as he is. So we see that being a part of Christ's family is not just to copy what Jesus does, like the apostles will sort of do, but to have even more than just an intent to copy Jesus, to have an allegiance to Jesus that is found in responding to God's call with the same sort of obedience that Christ had to the Father. Understand this this morning, that doing the will of God, following Christ, is not just about doing what God desires you to do, it's also about doing it in the way God desires you to do it. The giving of authority to the disciples, to the twelve, is not so that they can preach their own message. Not that they can cast out demons the way that they think works best. Rather, the giving of authority to the disciples, to the apostles, is to preach Christ's message truly in both the words they speak and in the way that they speak them. The authority that followers of Jesus have to preach the gospel, to share the good news, to call people to follow Jesus, and the way that we go about making disciples of Christ through baptism and teaching, the authority that we have as followers of Jesus in Christ to do these things is meant to affect also the way that we do these things. 
the heart and motivation with which we carry out this mission of Christ. Even as we proclaim a gospel of salvation in Jesus through repenting of sin and trusting Him, and, and preaching that message to a culture that is at odds with the gospel in so many ways, we must remember the Savior that we serve. And that our end goal is not to gain people to our team or tribe, but our end goal is to win the lost, broken, spiritually confused, and deceived souls to Jesus so that they might be saved. We ought to bear a family resemblance to our Father in heaven as we strive to fulfill the great commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, Jesus says, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Doing God's will, being a part of Christ's family, following after Jesus is not just about doing what God wants you to do. It's also about doing it the way God desires us to do it. The new family that is created in Christ is a family that originates in Christ. What we see about this family, that, the fam that this new family in Jesus doesn't just derive or, or progress out of Jesus or is found in him, but ultimately that Jesus is himself the tie that binds this very eclectic family together. The guys that Jesus calls to himself are a motley crew if ever there was one. We have Simon, P and I don't mean motley crew like the band, I mean motley in the sense that they're all mixed up. More of you laughed about Motley Crue than you did about Lilo and Stitch, which that's just, I'm just, I'm taking that in. I'm filing that away for further use. Here's the 12 that we're introduced to. We have Simon, Peter, and Andrew, who we've already met earlier in Mark's gospel. These are fishermen. These are brothers. Simon, Peter, we will come to learn, is a, a hothead with a short temper and a bad case of foot in mouth disease. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. We have James and John, who are also brothers and fishermen too, maybe even business partners with Peter and Andrew. And they're also a little too enthusiastic, as we'll see later on in Jesus' ministry alongside them. They want to, at one point, call fire down from heaven on people who don't receive Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, we read about that. They say, Lord, you want us to call down fire on these people who won't receive you? And Jesus is like, y'all need to chill a little bit. But that may be, in part, why they are uh, nicknamed Boanerges or Sons of Thunder. It's kind of a cool name, by the way. Let me get that tattooed on your bicep. I want to know which one was thunder and which one was lightning. Uh, we have Philip and Bartholomew. We have the other James and Thaddeus, about whom we, we know relatively little other than their presence uh, among and alongside Jesus. Then we have Matthew, also called Levi, who we already met earlier in Mark's gospel, who's a Jewish man who's contracted with the Roman government to collect taxes from his own Roman-occupied Jewish people. Then on the other side of that, you have Simon the Zealot, literally, or something like Simon the Nationalist, who was previously a part of a group who before joining Jesus, he was a part of a group who, who was working to, to plot together to overthrow the Romans in Judea. So you've got Matthew, who's working with the Romans, and you've got Simon, the nationalist, who's plotting with other people to kick the Romans out, and they're both following Jesus. Then we have Thomas, the one who doubted Christ and that, that Christ was raised from the dead, but also who in John chapter 11 showed a fierce loyalty and fearlessness to die alongside Jesus if it was necessary. And then last, we have Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, a man whose allegiance was ultimately not to Christ, but was to himself. This is an eclectic band of followers. This is an eclectic family, if ever there was one. Friends, who in their right mind would assemble a group like this to be the first members of a family of faith, to be the representative foundation for God's covenant people in Christ? 
Often today, when someone is going to plant a new church, the planting team will be encouraged to find people of like mind and passion to join them. A lot of emphasis will be put on being on the same page in matters of theology and church order and ministry priority and vision for the community that they're planting in. You often find among church planting teams a a deep-seated affinity that goes beyond just faith in Christ to also just kind of the way they see the world and live and interact in it. But Jesus pulls together a different kind of group. He pulls together a group of short-tempered fishermen brothers, a nationalist zealot, a man who could be confused as a Roman sympathizer, a handful of guys that we'll come to know very little about, a doubter, and a betrayer. Jesus defies nearly every best practice for developing effective teams. The amazing thing about this group, though, is that we, we do sometimes find them arguing and sometimes getting a bit out over their skis in a few different ministry-type situations, but for the most part, Judas excluded. They're setting aside their political idolatry, ideology, ideology, so I'll get the word out, and they're setting aside their tempers, setting aside even their livelihoods. For what purpose? To follow Jesus. What in the, what in the world could unite such an eclectic, different, strange, motley group of people? I dare say Jesus, and only Jesus, could unite men like these. Church this morning, understand, Christ must be the tie that binds His people together. Christ Himself must be that one thing that we hitch our our wagons to, that we tie our reins to, that we unite around. If we believe that the gospel is for everyone to hear and for everyone to believe and to be saved, we must be a church that is willing not only to take the gospel to people who are different from us, maybe even opposed to us, But when they hear the gospel and believe and turn from sin, we must be willing and glad to bring them into the fold of the family of Christ. Because more than any common affinity, whether it's political or economic or social or ethnic or otherwise, there's lots of things that we rally around in life. More than any of these, Christ must be the tie that binds his family. And he must be the focus of our ministry and the goal of our discipleship. We're not just trying to make good moral citizens here. We're trying to make mature followers of Jesus whose lives are defined and shaped and formed by Him, His character, His life in us and next to us. We must not only rally around Jesus, but we, uh, but we must all individually from our many varied and different backgrounds turn our eyes to Jesus and make Him, church, the singular object of our gaze if we're to be united at all as His people. And we may disagree about best methods for evangelism and discipleship, and that's not bad. But we must not disagree about why we share the gospel and who we're making disciples of. We might not see eye to eye about this or that way of contending for the faith in the public square, and lots of different uh, approaches will be helpful, but, this much is, uh, but we must be single-minded about the one for whom we contend. This much is true. No two disciples of Jesus are the same. Praise God. But the diversity of the body of Christ is made all the more beautiful and all the more compelling by the single bond of relationship to Christ that binds each of us one to another in Him. The most beautiful thing about an eclectic group of people called the church is the one that we are united around. The most beautiful thing is not what we look like. The most beautiful thing is Jesus who brings us all together. 
The most effective and compelling thing about us ought not to be our many different approaches and methodologies to evangelism or discipleship. The most effective and beautiful thing about us must be Jesus who drives us to mission. There is a new family of faith created in Christ. It originates in Him, and He's the tie that binds it together. But as we see... Jesus forming this new family of faith in him, we notice also that old family ties are frayed because of Christ, are strained because of Christ. So now we have to turn from the encouraging aspects of this passage to the more challenging one, namely that doing God's will and following Christ is costly, sometimes even threatening to natural family relationships. Notice, first of all, from our passage today that Jesus was not immune to family conflict. This is not to say that Jesus was the cause of his conflict with his family, but it was his dedication to God's will for him against his family's will for him that was the cause of this conflict. Mark 3, verse 21, tells us this. When his family heard it, that he's in a house in Capernaum, crowded uh, with people again, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. When all this commotion of people following Jesus was made known to his family, his mother and his brothers back in Nazareth, they sent out to Capernaum in order to seize him and drag him back home to stop him from his ministry because, as Mark says, they thought he was nuts. Now, it's sometimes taught that Jesus was an only child, but the Scriptures clearly refute this claim. He was the oldest He was the firstborn of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit while she was still a virgin. But Mary and Joseph had other kids by normal means after Jesus. Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 13, verse 55, tells us that he had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, as well as sisters. And it's these guys, his brothers, his sisters, and maybe Mary, his mother, too, who go out to bring him back because, by their understanding, he's about as mentally stable as a two-legged cow. By the way, do you know what you call a two-legged cow? Lean beef. Half of you laughed, half of you groaned. That's a good dad joke. All the dads laughed, everyone else groaned. All this preaching, Jesus, his mother and his brother say, is fine, no big deal. But it's gone on long enough now. All this healing you've been doing, Jesus, that's that's quite the display, and and we're glad that you're helpful to, to some, but it's time to come home now. By the way, you have family responsibilities. You are the oldest son, after all, remember? We have a mother to care for. Have you lost your mind? You can't live on the highways and the byways getting by just on the generosity of others. There's a family business. There's work to do. This is no life to pursue. And by the way, who do you think you are doing all of this anyhow? And so his family arrives at a crowded house with Jesus inside. This is probably, again, Peter's mother-in-law's house again. Poor lady or blessed saint. I'm not sure which. She's always got people over. And Jesus' family start calling for him to come out, to come home, to get his act together, and to leave all this nonsense behind. Here's a certainty, friend. To follow Jesus when your family doesn't will cause difficulty It will cause conflict. It will cause tension. Know this. Prepare for this. If Jesus wasn't immune to family conflict over pursuing and being obedient to the will of God, neither should we think that we'll be immune from it. Here's a true story. I know a pastor here in town who told me that 
Recently, a young man had been attending worship at their church. Uh, This young man was in his early college years. He began asking a lot of questions about Jesus and the faith and showing a lot of interest in becoming a Christian. This pastor's youth minister began meeting with the student, and in time, praise God, this young man placed his faith, his life in Jesus' hands. But almost as soon as he confessed Christ as Lord, this student's father, whose house he still lived in, began making strange and harsh demands on the young man. New chores and family obligations began popping up at the same time every Sunday morning that worship was happening, almost immediately, and the shared family car was now never available on Sunday mornings for him to use to go to worship. When asked after some time of absence where the young man had been, he confessed to his pastor, my dad really isn't very happy, I've become a Christian, he won't let me go to church, I really don't know what to do. The simple truth that the Bible communicates to us is that Jesus is a divisive figure. He's not divisive because he likes dividing people, but because as God's Messiah and Lord, he rightly asks for our total allegiance to him and to the will of God if we're going to follow him. Jesus himself promised that family conflict would be a result of his ministry and would be a result of of people with unbelieving families who followed him. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 to 39. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Jesus says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth, I've not come to bring peace but a sword, he's not not saying I've come to uh, set war upon the earth. But what he is saying in kind of an exaggerated and, and parabolic, a colorful way is, if you follow me, it is going to lead to division among between you who believe in me and those who don't. And if there are people of your household who do not believe in me, if you profess faith in me, there's going to be a rift in your relationship. It's going to be a deep rift such that father is set against son and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Even the closest of relationships, if there is not a a mutual grounding in the person of Jesus in that relationship, even the closest of them will be divided because of Jesus. He's a divisive figure. Christian, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? It is not an easy call. It is not an easy call to follow Jesus. It may cost you family relationships. It may cost you a job. It may cost you close friends. In places like today, like North Korea and Somalia and India and Yemen, in Iran and Afghanistan, to follow Jesus may literally cost your life. Allegiance to Jesus strains the closest and most dear relationships when those that we're in relationship with don't love Him don't trust him, aren't following him. But to those who count the cost and those who follow the hard path of faith in following Jesus, we find in this passage that Jesus provides an even deeper family bond. When Jesus asks, when his family comes to take him home because they think he's crazy, Jesus looks around the crowded room. He asks, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around the crowded house at the 12 
uh, disciples and the others who are there. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. All who do the Father's will in heaven are my brother, my brother and sister and mother. When Jesus says this, he is not saying you must despise your family to follow me. He's not saying you must hate your family if you're going to follow me. Rather, he's saying, even if your family doesn't follow me and they cast you out for following me and they cut you off for following me, you have a whole new family waiting for you with me. When Mark's gospel was first read in churches between the years 50 and 60 AD, many of the people hearing these words, being reminded of this event in Jesus' life, would have been those whose mothers and fathers had cast them out of their homes because they followed Jesus. Those in the early church who first heard these words would have been those whose husbands or wives had left them and taken the children with them because their spouse decided to follow Jesus. Early Christians hearing Mark's gospel, some may have been beaten by their brothers and spit upon by their sisters because they made the decision to follow Jesus. And these precious saints committed to the cost of following Christ would have heard the promise of Jesus, their Savior, in these words reminding them there is a home and a family and as Proverbs says, a friend who sticks closer than a brother to be found among the people of Jesus. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And Psalm 27 verse 10 says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. In Mark chapter 10, some of the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Peter began to say to him, Mark 10, 28, See, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or mothers or sisters or, excuse me, left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There is in Christ a wonderful, beautiful, new family bond that is created that goes even deeper than blood. So that those whose mothers and fathers kick them out of their house for believing will find among the family of faith more mothers and more fathers than they ever had in their house growing up. Mothers and fathers in the faith to take them in and to grow them up, to disciple them in the faith. Those whose brothers and sisters have beat them and spit upon them and kicked them out of their family will not find a hundred more brothers and sisters in the family of God. Those who have been kicked out of their homes, had their possessions taken from them, find among the people of God, among the people of Christ in His church, generosity and hospitality to be taken in, to be cared for in ways that their blood family could not do. Friends, the cost to follow Jesus is high, very high. It is very expensive. And if you are one who lives with unbelieving family, it may cost those relationships. To follow Jesus may lead to the end of significant, meaningful relationships in your life. Knowing that Jesus provides a deeper family bond among those who have believed him, how necessary is it then that we who follow Jesus, that we care for the one among us who's been denounced by their family, that we take in the one who's been cast out by brother or sister? The young man I mentioned just before is today still trying to navigate the consequences of his faith and how the, those are bearing out with his relationship to his father. The young man has been baptized now. That's great. We celebrate with him in that regard, but his father still holds sway over his life, as pastor told me, in some very unhealthy and unhelpful ways. 
My pastor friend told me of his most recent conversation with the young man saying, I'm not telling you you need to cut ties with your father. The scripture calls us to honor our parents. But if your father will not allow you to follow Christ as you know you must, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. You may need to pursue a better paying job. You may need to move out of the house. You may may need to learn to use public transit to get around town. You may need help to pay rent and some place to buy groceries if your father cuts you off financially. You're going to need friends to come alongside you who are going to sacrifice out of their own pockets and out of their own homes to make things work out for you. He said, and I'm telling you as your pastor that this church family, your church family, is ready to help in every way you need it. We're family. It's what we do. It's who Christ has brought us together to be. Christian, because of the splendor and joy of knowing Jesus the Christ, you can say with all sincerity, I'm ready. Can you say with all sincerity, I'm ready for that kind of sacrifice for my brother, for my sister in Christ? If you know Jesus, can you say, I'm ready to dig into my pocket, to open space in my home, to make a a place of welcome here for the one who's been cast out by their family because of their faith in Christ? Jesus said in John 13, 35, that the world would know that we are his followers, his disciples, his brothers and sisters, his family, by the love that we have for one another. Not necessarily by the love that we have for people in the world, but the world will know we're his disciples by the love we have for one another, a love that is grounded in and united around the person of Jesus Christ. Christian, are you prepared? Brothers and sisters of First Baptist West Albuquerque, are we prepared out of love for Christ to give sacrificially of our time? to give sacrificially of our money, to give even space in our home to a brother or a sister in need. Because that's the kind of obligation that is required, that is called of by those who have trusted Christ. If we believe that Jesus is worth it, we must be ready for these things. Dear friend who is not a Christian yet, the call to follow Jesus may seem an especially foolish call to you today. Why would anyone be willing to give up the most important relationships in their life to take on a new religion, a new faith, a new worldview? The answer is not easy, but it is simple. They do this because they see the truth of it. They do this because they're aware of the reality that for all the affirmation of others and effort to live their best life, that something still is not fitting, something is still not making sense. Those who leave family, if necessary, to follow Jesus are aware of the real concern that they have over immoral actions in their lives and need for absolution for these wrongs. And they find that for all their good deed doing, that the stain of past sins and hurts does not fade but continues to weigh them down. And those that are willing to even leave family and friends to follow Jesus, they hear the message of a God who in all His perfection cannot be approached by imperfect people, but who Himself approaches imperfect people of His own will and then secures the forgiveness and clearness of conscience that they have longed for by the sacrifice of the life of His own Son who did not stay dead but was raised again. People believe this gospel and follow Jesus even when it's a hard decision to make. This Jesus who is that Son of God because they see the beauty of the message. A perfect life given willingly for the undeserving. They follow Jesus because they see not just that it's beautiful, but that it's good. That there's hope to be found in this. And they follow this Jesus. They answer this call to give up their lives to follow Him because they come to find that by testing it that it is true. 
that it is historically true, that it is spiritually true, that it is based on the testimony of reliable witnesses. These 12 are the foundation of all that we believe, and they come to believe because they open themselves to being changed by Jesus, no matter the cost. That if God is real, if His Word is true, it is worth giving up all that is necessary to follow Him faithfully. Now, the good news and the promise is that for all who give up all that is necessary to follow Him, that they find among all the rest who have followed Him too, a loving, receiving, welcoming, caring family to receive them. Why? Because Jesus has saved us by His grace. If you find yourself in that state today, friend, not yet following Jesus, needing a home for your soul, needing healing for your sins, but you're terrified that it will cost you your family, I hope that you hear me clearly when I say this. And I say this, First Baptist West Albuquerque, on behalf of all of us, to the one who needs healing and help in the face of maybe even the destruction of family relationships, I hope you hear me say on behalf of us here that we are glad and ready, as ready as we know how to be, to take you in as a brother or sister as you believe in Christ, to walk with you as you grow in faith, to pray with you for God's help, that he might bring all those that you love to trust him as well, so that the family of Christ might also come to include your entire natural family too. What a blessing. Following Jesus requires much. It is a costly call. But it also provides, in surprising ways, maybe most of all, in the gift of a family of faith that loves deeply, that cares sincerely, and walks humbly together after our Savior. Christian, you who know this Jesus, know the call, you know the cost, make yourself ready to meet it for those who need it. Those who have not known Christ yet, who are still struggling with what it means to follow Him sacrificially, what I might have to give up, Our reminder, our encouragement, our invitation to you is this. Come find a family of faith among us. Some of us have have been kicked out by family. Some of us have been left by spouses. Some of us have been abused by brothers and sisters because of our faith. I hope that you will find in us people who not just know what you're going through, but know how to pray for you, how to care for you, how to help you walk and follow Jesus and to minister to your family. God in his will and in his timing might turn their hearts to him too. Following Jesus creates, and we find in it, a new family of faith, a blessed family of faith that sometimes strains natural family ties. The call to follow Jesus is costly. It may cost even your family. But if he is, if he is real and he is risen, then he is worth it. He is worthy of all of our discipleship. May God make that so in us. Let's pray together.